ahead and be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to our reading of God's Word, our sermon text, that is. Matthew chapter 19. We are reading verses 27 to 30, the last portion of this chapter in Matthew's Gospel. This is the Word of God. It contains everything that you and I need for life and godliness. It is uh, without error in the original languages in which it was given, and we have the promise in faithful translations, such as the one from which I am reading, that it remains to us the authoritative Word of God. So listen carefully to him speak. As I read, verse 27, Then Peter answered and said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne You also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms, for my name's sake, shall receive many times as much, and shall inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Amen. Join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your love for us that causes you to want to bless us, though we are undeserving. We know that the one of the principal ways, the foremost way that you bless us spiritually is through the means of grace. And we know from what your word teaches that preaching is the foremost means of grace, the preeminent means of grace. Lord, it is a mysterious thing that a sinner speaks from his own mind and uh, in expounding your scriptures and that you speak through him to the degree that he rightly expounds your word, but it is true. You say so. Would you please help us to not see a man, but to see and hear Christ now? And would you, as you speak to us, O King, would you please... Honor yourself and the Trinity, and would you please bless us too, as you have promised to do. For we ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. Hey kids, um, I want you to think of something here. I want you to think of uh, something that your father has told you to do on some occasion. Um, I'll just give you an example here, uh, if you can't think of something right off the bat. Perhaps your dad went away 
for the day. Maybe it was just going off to work. Or maybe it was going off for an overnight uh, uh, stay somewhere, and he may have said to you, now I want you to be good for your mother while I'm gone. You probably heard that, right, from your dad on occasion. I want you to be good for your mom. Now, that, if and when he gave you that command, that order, if you will, that rule, uh, that's something that you are supposed to do because God tells you in his word that you are required as children to obey your parents. So you're required to do that. You're required to obey your dad and your mom also, by the way. I hope you already know that. Uh, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, God says to us in Ephesians chapter 6. So you're required to do what your dad tells you to do when he says, be good for your mom while I'm gone. But wouldn't it be, or wouldn't you be all that much more um, interested in and willing to obey your dad when he tells you, you need to obey while I'm gone, obey your mom while I'm gone, wouldn't it be much more encouraging to you and even motivating to you, uh, that means you want to do it, uh, if your dad said, and if you do obey your mom, when we come back, I'll take you out for ice cream, a banana split, or whatever your ice cream is, your favorite ice cream. That would be kind of a little extra incentive, wouldn't it? Like, wow, okay, I haven't had a banana split in a while, and all I have to do is be good for... Mom, well, Dad's gone. So Dad gives you the command, the order, the instruction, but he then gives you an incentive, an encouragement of reward if you uh, fulfill that command that he has given to you that you're supposed to do anyway. Well, kids, this is a lot like the way God interacts with us, what I just said. You see, God has commanded you and me all of us who are his people, he has commanded us to trust in Christ and to obey him, that is God. And we are required to do that because God has commanded us to do that. But God has also promised to reward you greatly for your efforts uh, as a Christian to live a life of trust and obedience. If you work hard at trying to obey God and obey God more and more as time goes on. If you work hard at trying to trust God uh, and trust Jesus more and more as time goes on, God says, I'm going to reward you for that as a Christian. And yes, even if that reward wasn't there, even if he didn't promise reward to you, you're still required to do it because God has authority over you and me. And yet, Yes, we are commanded, but there's this reward that God says, I will bless you if you are faithful in striving to obey and trust me. This passage teaches that point. Just remind you of the background here, and I probably actually should have started reading uh, earlier than I did to remind you of the background because uh, this is an ongoing conversation. this is the, the previous section described the Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. Many of you uh, uh, heard that sermon. And so that's what's the background to this verse, or this section. So he has been talking with the rich young ruler, and uh, the disciples uh, have heard, just heard, Jesus tell the rich young ruler in verse 21 that in order for him to obtain life, because remember his question was, Teacher, what good thing shall I do? 
that I may obtain eternal life. That was in verse 16. Jesus had just told him, and the disciples had heard him say, you need to sell all that you have and follow me. And then, and the rich young ruler, you see, thought he was going to get into heaven by his works, and Jesus was basically saying, you, you have an idol in your life, and you're going to have to give that idol up, because you have to trust in and love me first. That's what it means to be a Christian. And Jesus knew that that was the idol in his life, and he forced him to be confronted with that truth and to make a choice, and he did. At least on this occasion, he went away grieved. Because, now, we don't know what happened to him later on. He may have rethought things, and the grace of God may have caused him to be converted. We just don't know. But the point is, he thought, approaching Jesus, he could get into heaven by his good deeds, gain eternal life. But after leaving, um, Peter, after the rich young ruler leaves, Peter then asks on behalf of the other disciples, present as he often did, speaks on their behalf, he, he says to Jesus, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. And the, really, they had, right? They had, they had given up their, profe- their professions, their, the, their livelihood. They had, uh, 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 Matthew had walked away from his very lucrative income that he has as a tax collector. Uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John had left their fishing trade. All just dropped it all and followed Jesus. They had made genuine sacrifices. And we're continuing to make sacrifices as they followed him around uh, and experienced some of the uh, um, the ridicule uh, and the anger that uh, Jesus himself was experiencing, undoubtedly, uh, because they were at his side. So they had abandoned a great deal that this world has to offer already on behalf of Christ and in service to him. This is unlike the rich young ruler. The disciples, unlike him... Uh, they were willing to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Christ. Uh, the rich young ruler had not been willing, at least uh, from what we read here at this point in his life. So, after reminding Jesus that, Lord, we have, we have um, given these things up, we've left everything and we've followed you, after that reminder, Jesus then asks him, what then will there be for us? In other words, given the fact that we have done what you've told the rich young ruler to do, uh, what will be the outcome for, for the twelve of us? The answer would seem to be obvious, right? Because uh, they just heard the conversation that Jesus had with this uh, young man. Uh, that is, that they would have treasure in heaven, because that's what Jesus told him. In verse 21. So, why did Peter ask this? Why does Peter ask, well, what there, then will there be for us? Now, some people have speculated that uh, uh, Peter was exhibiting a bit of a mercantile spirit here. Um, that's the words of one of the commentators I read. Uh, that he was, what's in it for me? Because we've done this, so what's, what's in it for us? Um, I think that's a little unkind. But there may have been a little bit of that in there, don't know. 
Uh, or it may have been, and I think this is uh, uh, more likely, that uh, Peter and perhaps uh, some of the others as well were confused by Jesus' dual assertions uh, in his discussion with the rich young ruler that, A, one, it is impossible for men to obtain eternal life for themselves, and B, God alone can accomplish this salvation. And he might have heard those two things said and and uh, and then thought, well, then how can we be sure that we will obtain the treasures in heaven um, when it's out of our control? That might have might well have been what was going on, the motive behind his question. Or it may have just been he wanted to know some of the specifics of that treasure. Well, what do you mean by treasures, Lord? What what exactly are we talking about? That's another possibility. We don't know. We can't crawl into Peter's head. Uh, but those are all possibilities. I think the mercantile spirit probably is the least likely. Whatever. That's the background. You need to know that because it bears quite a bit on the understanding of this text. So let me give you the points that we're going to look at in the remainder of our time together. First of all, we're going to look at the specific promise of reward in eternity that Jesus makes to the twelve, found in verse 28. And then secondly... At the end of the uh, latter part of the sermon, we are going to look at the general promise of reward in eternity that Jesus makes to all believers. So first, the specific promise to the twelve in verse 28, and then the general promise to all believers in the remainder of this section. So, the disciples, the specific promise made to them. It is definitely a promise made to the original twelve disciples, excluding Judas, I might add. Um, and by the way, since Judas would eventually re- be replaced by Matthias, you recall uh, from Acts, the number 12 is still correct, right? Uh, and interestingly, this promised reward doesn't appear to apply to Paul, uh, who ended up being the 13th apostle. I'm not sure what to make of that. If you have any ideas, let me know. At any rate, I don't think it makes a whole lot of difference to the, the points being made. The point is, uh, these 12, uh, or the 12, are going to be rewarded, uh, the original disciples of Jesus. Rewarded for what? Well, they will be rewarded for all of the various sacrifices that they had already made up to this point in Jesus' ministry, and the many more that they were yet to make uh, in service to Christ before the end of their life here on earth. For example, all the, uh, all the sacrifices of uh, material uh, wealth that they might have had, uh, some of them anyway, uh, of, uh, of uh, security that they may have enjoyed, of... Um, of uh, uh, relaxation that they might have otherwise been able to experience, uh, all the effort that they would have put into following Christ and serving uh, serving the Lord and serving others, uh, uh, the sufferings they would have to endure. And we know that those sufferings, for many if not all of them, were uh, uh, unto death. Church tradition tells us that all but John died a martyr's death uh, before uh, the end of their lives. And so all of these sacrifices that these 12 men, um, or the 12 uh, disciples were going to have to make for Jesus, or had already made, was, was enormous. It was enormous. And it is for this that they would be rewarded by Jesus in the way that he mentions here in verse 28. When would be the t- time of this promise's 
this promise its fulfillment? When would be the time of it? Well, Jesus used this, uh, uses this phrase. He speaks of in the regeneration is when this reward will come to the original 12. That is to say, he's referring here to the restored or renewed universe. Uh, what is referred to in Isaiah and also in Second uh, Peter uh, chapter three verse thirteen and Revelation twenty one uh, as the new heavens and the new earth. This almost, almost certainly is what Jesus has in mind here when he speaks of the regeneration. It is also referred to by many uh, reformed theologians as and other theologians as well as the eternal state, the final state uh, of at the end of human history as we know it, after uh, that history of on the unrenewed earth has drawn to a close. That's the eternal state. That is the, uh, the regeneration, if you will, of which Jesus is almost certainly speaking. And that would occur on the day when the Son of Man, Jesus, uh, would be seated on the throne of his kingdom, which again we read there in verse 28. That would be the day that would usher in his session uh, uh, as the uh, after after the day of judgment, uh, after Jesus had finally and fully subdued all of his enemies to himself uh, and brought history, human history, to a close. Uh, after the day of judgment, this would be the time of which uh, this re- when this reward would be given. What are the elements of the reward that Jesus promises to the twelve? Well, he says that there will be twelve thrones arrayed around the great throne on which King Jesus himself will be sitting. And the twelve apostles, to whom Jesus is referring here, will be seated on those twelve thrones. And Jesus tells us that at that time, the apostles, as they are seated on those twelve thrones, will be judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, there's not universal agreement as to what this means, even in reform circles. Some reformed uh, folks, uh, thinkers, uh, theologians, pastors, uh, think that what Jesus means by judging the 12 tribes of Israel, that, that the 12 apostles, disciples turned apostles, will participate somehow in the judicial activity of Christ on the judgment day. Uh, perhaps by that participation might be uh, ratifying or applauding, shall we say, the sentences that Jesus pronounces against his enemies. Matthew Henry holds to this view, by the way. So a participation in the judicial activity of Christ, and again, speculatively ratifying or, or applauding uh, what Jesus has already pronounced against the uh, uh, reprobate. Other uh, other theologians, Reformed theologians, and William Hendrickson would be an example of this, think that by judging uh, the twelve tribes of Israel, Christ merely means that the twelve disciples, apostles, will be presiding over the twelve tribes, um, as per Revelation 3.21, and will be reflecting in their countenance the glory of their king, uh, of Jesus, in an outstanding way per Daniel chapter 12, verse 23. Those were the uh, texts that uh, Hendrickson cited to uh, prove his point. We don't know. Um, But those are two good guesses. The point is, the disciples, the original 12, well, 11 plus Matthias, um, 
will be in this situation, will receive this reward in the eternal state. And they will be over the 12 tribes of Israel, referring to the restored new Israel. Now, what's the restored new Israel? This could be a reference to the total number of the elect gathered from among the biological descendants of Jacob um, uh, throughout world history. It could be that, and there are Reformed theologians that uh, believe that that is the fact the case. Romans 11 uh, lends credence to that view, 11.26. But I think it is more likely that the uh, restored new Israel uh, is a reference to all the elect, regardless of their ethnicity. I think that's more likely. I'm not going to die on that hill. Um, but uh, Jesus does refer to the church at large in Galatians, uh, Paul does rather, in Galatians 6.16, as the Israel of God. So that, that supports that view. Again, it's speculative. Um, it's not necessary that we uh, know for sure uh, which it is. The point is it will be a glorious, glorious um, reward for these men. Okay, we looked at the specific promise of reward in eternity that Jesus makes to the 12, the original 12. But then he goes on to speak of a more general promise of reward in eternity to all believers. And this is found in verses 29 and 30, particularly verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This general promise of reward uh, undoubtedly also included the original twelve disciples, uh, turned apostles, uh, in addition to the reward that they would specifically get. Uh, this reward would have included them as well. But again, this promise that Jesus is making here in verse 29, he is making to all those who would already be or who already were his disciples. Now, I'm making that point intentionally, because you see, it's to those who are, have already trusted in Jesus alone to purchase God's pardon uh, of their sins and to reconcile themselves to him, it's to those converted people that this promise applies. This is not, in other words, this is not instruction to the unbeliever about how he can earn favor from and acceptance from God. It is not spoken to unbelievers. And we know this because of what we read in just, uh, just a couple of examples. Romans uh, 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a free gift. It is granted. It is not earned. Again, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You all are familiar with this verse. Uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. So, clearly this doesn't apply, what we're reading here about rewards, which is earned, or earned, rather. This doesn't apply to the unbeliever, as to how he gets saved. Let me say this while I'm talking about that. The only way that the unbeliever who is, um, is a sinner and deserves to go to hell like all of us do, the only way an unbeliever is going to be um, in heaven, when he uh, go to heaven when he or she dies, is if that person is trusting in Jesus alone. And not any old Jesus, not the Mormon Jesus, not the Muslim Jesus, 
uh, not the deist Jesus or the New Age Jesus, but the Jesus of the Scriptures, who is 100% God, 100% man, and is the only uh, way to God, the only way to heaven, the only way to be forgiven, uh, by trusting in him alone to make you right with God. So if you've not done that, and you're here and you're listening to me, the only thing you need to hear from my sermon and, and, and act on is what I just said. You need to trust in Christ alone. Okay, so this promise here that we read is not to uh, unbelievers. But what it is to believers. It is to believers. So what is the promise? Well, let's look at it. He says there, uh, in the latter part of verse 29, that this person who does this, and I'll get back to this in a moment, shall receive many times as much. Will receive, in other words, many times as much in terms of blessings as what he or she would have, uh, as, as, as he or she was required to uh, forego or give up in service to Christ. There's a cost to Christian discipleship. We have to... There is, there, is, there is sacrifice involved. Salvation is a free gift, but the person who becomes a Christian and is saved does have to um, pay a price for his Christianity after he's been converted or after she's been converted. And so there is a, a cost, if you will. Um, and uh, But we will receive many times as much in terms of what we get in return for the sacrifice that we make in this life in service to Christ as we gave up in this life. That's the point. That's the point. And by the way, I said, you notice I said this life. Matthew's version, Matthew's account, does not mention when these rewards uh, of many times as much will be received, but Mark's account does. So if you go over to Mark, we won't take time to go there now, but in Mark 10.30, he speaks of that these rewards that Jesus is promising here in verse 29 in Matthew's account are for this present life. Interesting. This present life. Well, what are those rewards? Well, they are probably referring to, likely referring to, both spiritual and material rewards. The reason we can say uh, material rewards is because you can kind of spiritualize uh, uh, brothers, sisters, fathers, mother, children. You can kind of spiritualize those sort of things and say, well, they might be Christian relationships with other Christians or something like that. Uh, but you can't really spiritualize farms. <laughs> so uh, that's, he's, yeah. So there are, this is a reference to, I'm convinced, material rewards and, of course, spiritual rewards as well. And the percentage of each that's in the mix will undoubtedly vary from person to person, from believer to believer. Some believers will be rewarded with significant material blessings, perhaps monetary wealth or uh, safety, uh, security, uh, physical security, that is to say. But there are others, other believers, whose, where the lion's share of the blessing that they receive in this life 
for their service to Christ will be non-material in nature. This would certainly be the case for any believer in North Korea, for example, or in uh, Saudi Arabia, or Sudan. Their rewards are likely to be weighted heavily on the spiritual side. So, uh, a sense of nearness of God to them. Uh, a special sense of nearness to God or of God's love for them. Perhaps uh, the blessings of a clear conscience um, and renouncing the world and its ways and uh, paying the price for service to Christ that, uh, that gives uh, them a clear conscience. It might be contentment. Uh, an unusual degree of contentment that you or I might not enjoy, but that they do, in spite of the fact they don't know where their next meal is coming from. Uh, a sense of well-being, just of wellness of, of their soul and body, or, or just joy, just a, uh, just a joy of walking with Christ that, uh, that, that pr- produces an unusual exuberance in them that might not be the case in some other believer who gets a big house. We don't know. But the point is, it is probably a mixture of both and varies from person, from believer to believer who is rewarded. But here's the point. Every disciple of Jesus who strives to faithfully serve Christ and God in faith and with obedience will be rewarded for doing so and will be rewarded in this life. And then, when his or her appointed number of days upon earth are up, he will enter into the fullness of eternal life, which is in the last part of verse 29 there. As his final, uh, I don't hesitate to use the word reward there, because eternal life is only obtained by grace uh, through faith, uh, through Christ alone. Uh, but yes, he will. the final outcome for his... Um, his, of his salvation will be eternity with God in heaven and with Christ and the church. Well, this reward, this promise of reward that Jesus gives to us, we who are believers, is a conditional promise. It's conditional. The promised rewards will only go uh, to those believers who have made sacrifices similar to the ones that Jesus mentions here in verse 29 say similar to, that the idea of sacrifice, of having to pay a price for one's commitment to Jesus at any particular point uh, that we are called upon to make those sacrifices in our daily lives. Um, And the truth is, folks, that every believer, true believer, who is truly united to Jesus, will, to varying degrees, make these sacrifices. Anybody who never makes a sacrifice for Christ is not a believer. Because there's a sacrifice to putting off sin. It's, 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 it's painful. It's difficult. Uh, it's trying. It requires effort to say goodbye to our idols. And a true believer is going to, we are told, obey Christ. Imperfectly, yes, but truly. Not to gain his salvation, but because he's saved. And varying believers will do this in varying amounts over the course of their life. 
And by the way, those sacrifices will be made, uh, and we glean this from other passages, uh, for the sake, and actually for this, this one as well, for the sake of Christ. Let me reread that. Uh, and everyone who has left father, uh, left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake, and, uh, and one of the other accounts that says merely for my sake, will, uh, receive these blessings. So the motive, you see, will, um, will be one of love for what for Christ in return for the love that he has shown us. Gratitude to him for his, uh, his purchase of our pardon. A deep desire on our part to serve and honor and uh, uh, obey him. And that motive, not always perfect, in fact, never perfect, but will truly be there as we, as we make sacrifices uh, for, for Christ uh, as our king and giving up and say goodbye to our old idols and to the world, um, and fighting against the devil. So it's a conditional promise of reward. It's also, folks, a graciously given promise. Or it's a promise of graciously given rewards. I'll put it that way. That's a better way to put it. You see, God alone uh, is responsible for bringing about uh, the salvation of any sinner who ends up being reconciled to him. God alone is responsible for that outcome. Um, from beginning to end, uh, God is in that process. He gives us the very faith that we need to lay hold of Christ. But though those who trust Jesus to forgive them do nothing to help earn or merit their own salvation, yet Christ is telling us here in this passage and else, elsewhere uh, that we believers will one day be richly rewarded for any sacrifices that we are providentially called upon to make on account of our love for Christ. Now, perhaps um, this kind of reward language that I just used sounds a little strange and maybe even a little unsettling to you. Um, because most of you who are here and many of you who are watching um, remotely are used to hearing from this pulpit and elsewhere that a sinner can do nothing in and of himself to please or make himself acceptable to a thrice holy God. So any talk of a holy God, uh, this God of ours, uh, who demands perfection, any talk of him bestowing heavenly rewards upon sinners for imperfect good deeds that they have uh, done, seems to imply that somehow uh, those sinners have truly earned God's favor by that morally imperfect good deed of theirs. Quote, unquote, good. So maybe that's a little unnerving to you to hear rewards, really? thought everything was all of grace. It is. It is. The language of reward is used, yes. Um, but it's a... Uh, in a manner of speaking, uh, it is. The fact of the matter is that the Bible regularly speaks of God, the Father, bestowing rewards upon his children. Just a couple of quick examples here. One from the Old Testament, a couple from the New. In Genesis, and there are many more that could be brought to bear, by the way, but this is just illustrative. Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 to 18, Jesus, uh, excuse me, God speaking to Isaac, and he says, 
uh, Genesis twenty two fifteen, and the then the angel of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate Christ, most of us believe that to be the case, called to Abraham a second time from heaven, oh, I'm sorry, it is Abraham, and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, this is after the uh, Isaac episode, indeed I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You hear that? Because you have obeyed my voice. Then, skipping over to the New Testament in Colossians, we have... uh, uh, the Holy Spirit through Paul saying in Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24, a familiar verse to many of us, Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. By the way, inheritance speaks of, um, uh, speaks of something that is justly given but that is not earned. Inheritance does. So, but there's a reward, but the language of reward is still used there. And then, of course, that familiar passage over in uh, uh, the uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. You see. So, that's we have this language in Scripture, and the reason these passages are not in conflict with the many other passages which indicate that a sinner cannot earn God's favor or acceptance um, uh, by his own efforts, the reason that these passages are not in conflict is because the two groups of passages to which I'm referring refer to two different phenomena. What are those phenomena? Well, the first group deals with how lost sinners, read unbelievers, how they are and how they are not rec- going to be reconciled to God. That's one group of passages. The other group, I just read three examples of just now, the other group informs us of how God intends to bless his already forgiven children in this life and in the next. So, the rewards that God bestows on his believing children are not strictly meritoriously given, but are graciously given. Not deserved, because they're not perfect. Our our obedience, our trust, our faith is not perfect. It's nowhere close. But it's genuine. And in spite of the imperfections, we are graciously rewarded for our efforts, imperfect though they may be, to trust and obey Jesus. And our good works as Christians are acceptable and pleasing to God because of Jesus. Because Jesus, by his substitutionary work on our behalf, makes our imperfect good deeds perfect in the sight of God. Pleasing, I'll put it that way and acceptable in the sight of God. But only after we've been forgiven, you see. Only after we've been born again do can our imperfect efforts at good deeds um, be um, mean something in eternity. See, the unbeliever, we may the unbeliever does his good deeds and it means nothing to God. They're vile and repugnant in his sight because they're stained with the sin of his heart. 
our good deeds are no longer stained by the sin of our heart. They pass through the blood of Christ as they're done, and they are pleasing to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Praise the Lord. So, in conclusion, how should you and I respond to these promises, uh, particularly the ones that apply to us uh, found in verse uh, 29? How should we respond? Well, first of all, I think it's quite obvious we should be grateful that such promises were given and that they apply, uh, in our case, uh, they apply to this life. Um, God is being enormously gracious in making any promise of any reward, let alone many times as much as what we might give up in this life. So we should be filled with gratitude for the promise. Secondly, we should be filled with gratitude for the rewards that we have already received as Christians for our imperfect strivings. You've undoubtedly received rewards if you've been a Christian for a while. Sometimes we don't acknowledge those gifts and those graces the way we should, do we? But we have been. And this passage should remind us, I need to be thankful for what I do have, for the blessings that I have received, rather than focusing or fixating on the the, uh, less than enjoyable aspects of life in this world. I'll put it that way. So we should be filled with gratitude for the kindnesses already shown by God and yet to be shown uh, as he gives us breath. And then thirdly, you and I should respond by recommitting ourselves to, uh, to greater effort to trust and obey our Lord and our God. Lord, please give me deeper faith to trust your promises, to act on your promises. Please give me a greater ability to resist these temptations that I so often face. Please cause me to love the the truths of your word and the commandments that you have set forth in your word and not see them as as restrictive of of my fun or of, of whatever. Please, Lord, cause me to serve you more vigorously and to strive even more than I have up to this point in my life. And you should do this, and I should do this, first and foremost, because our God and our Savior deserves it from us. That's by far the most important reason why we should redouble our efforts to put off sin and put on righteousness for the glory and honor of our God and our Savior. But there is a second reason. And it is mentioned in this passage. And that is because you will be blessed by God with rewards for your strivings to honor him in the remainder of your life until God calls you home. That's a wonderful, those are wonderful reasons for us to fight, keep fighting the good fight of faith. And only God can give us the grace to do it. Let's turn to him now for that grace. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray for this grace which we need. Lord, we have all failed at times, uh, many, many times. We have all 
not uh, striven the way we should in our battle against indwelling sin, our battle against the world, against evil forces around us. We have not all uh, fought for obedience in our lives the way we should consistently, the way we should. And we ask your pardon for this, Lord. Please forgive us for our lazy uh, service to you all too often. We thank you that you do forgive us. And we thank you, Lord, that we don't have to remain, the status quo doesn't have to remain. We can grow in our strivings, grow in our fighting the good fight. But we need your help in doing so. Would you please give us greater grace to to love you, to trust you, to obey you, to serve you the way you deserve from us. And would you please also help us to be grateful, more grateful than we have been, for the rewards, undeserved, but graciously given by you so far and in the future. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.